0: Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walk on over to Walters this Saturday night to watch the big fight, Jake Paul versus Haseem Rahman Jr.
1: Register to receive
2: one free Mike's Hard Lemonade. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. This is very simply the largest trade package we've ever seen for an individual player. The amount of talent going back to the Washington Nationals matches the amount of talent going to the San Diego Padres for Juan Soto. They're getting Mackenzie Gore, a left-hander. They're getting Robert Hassel and outfielder CJ Abrams, a shortstop Harlan Susana, a right-handed pitcher, 18 years old, throws 100 miles per hour. James Wood, second round pick last year, Fantastic talent, six seven, 240 pounds, the biggest power perhaps in the minor leagues. You know, in 2019, we had a slogan, Bumpy Roads lead to beautiful places. You know, we're in a bumpy road right now. And uh, we believe that coming out of this thing, it'll be a beautiful place.
3: What he meant to us as a national family, for the city, for the fans we should cherish that.
0: Edwards ready third base side of the slab he delivers swinging a ground ball toward the middle off the mound fielded by Garcia right to the bag at second he steps
3: on second base and a curly W is in the books the Nationals
0: take the middle game of this three-game series with the Mets and welcome to Nats Chat for Wednesday August 3rd 2022 and now begins the rest of of our lives, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals Insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast. Well, I guess we could say this: Who needs Juan Soto and Josh Bell when you have Joey Manessis and Corey Abbott? The Nats on Tuesday night authored one of the more improbable wins in at least recent franchise history, if not franchise history. Period. A five-one win over the National League East-leading New York Mets at Nationals Park as Corey Abbott. Outdueled Jacob deGrom, and a makeshift Nats lineup smashed three home runs. All of that was nice, all of that was fun, but all of that came at the end of a truly monumental day in Nats history. Juan Soto is gone. He has been traded. An eight-player mega deal with the San Diego Padres, Soto and Josh Bell to the Padres for five prospects, and Luke Voigt, August 2nd, 2022, MOB trade deadline day, 2022. This was a day that we on this podcast had been targeting for months. The Nats incredibly only ended up making one trade on the day. That's a story in and of itself. But no doubt, Mark, that day, August 2nd, 2022, goes down as an all-timer in Nats history.
1: Well, and it makes me think back, Al, to July 30th. And 31st of 2021, which at the time, I think we and pretty much any Nationals fan following the team would have thought, well, that's the craziest and most depressing trade deadline we'll ever see, right? You just traded away Max Scherzer and Trey Turner and six other guys completely dismantling the franchise. Well, all right, that was awful, but at least we never have to go through that again. And the fact that one year later, they would do something even bigger and more devastating in a lot of ways than that was, it's shocking. It's not shocking in that we had two weeks to mentally prepare for the possibility. And I think we've talked all along that we knew there was a distinct chance this was going to happen. And I think I had said, if there's one team that you could see going all in and being crazy enough to give up every prospect they have, it's probably the Padres. And sure enough, that's who it was. But it still stopped for a moment and think about it. They just traded Juan Soto. They traded 23-year-old Juan Soto with more than two years of control on him for five prospects and another big leaguer. They also traded Josh Bell, but it's hard to think of that many trades of this consequence in baseball history. And that's not a second guess. That's a first guess because there are guys who are traded and you look back years later and say, oh, what a disaster that turned out to be, or look what that player turned into. I mean, this is one where, you know, on the day that it happened, this is an all-time player. And they just traded him away at age 23. And that Juan Soto, a cornerstone of the greatest moments in this franchise, ends up being a national for only four and a half seasons. That's pretty crazy to think about.
0: It's crazy. It's unfortunate. And it never had to be this way. And I think for me, that's like the biggest feeling that I've had with what went down on Tuesday. This didn't have to happen. The Nats never had to do this, never had to trade Juan Soto, certainly didn't have to do it this season. This situation should have never wound up where it ended up winding up. And I think if you're a Nats fan, you really have to ask why and how. Why did this happen and how did we get here? This is really nuts when you think about it. This was not even a topic as of, what, a month ago. The Nats trading Juan Soto this season. It wasn't that long ago that Mike Rizzo went on the radio and said that the Nats would not be trading Juan Soto. On June 1st, Mike Rizzo was on the Sports Junkies on 106.7 The Fan and said, quote,
2: we are not trading Juan Soto. We made it clear to his agent and to the player. I, you know, I understand. We uh, these uh, journalists have to, uh, you know, they've got to fill a, a blank sheet of paper every day. It's a, <laughs> it's a good, uh, it's a good thing to, uh, to get some, uh, to get some attention on on a story. But uh, we have every intention of building
0: this team around Juan Soto. End quote. What happened with that? Because by July 16th, we had the reports of Soto having turned down the $440 million offer. The Nats were open to trading him, and we were off and running. And from July 16th to August 2nd, everything happened. Everything unfolded. What happened? Why did this happen? I think there's a lot here we don't know. I think there's a lot that's going to come out eventually about what was going on behind the scenes. There's a lot here that doesn't add up. It's very strange. It's bizarre in some ways. You know, Put aside whether you think the Nats should or should not have traded Soto. That's different. How and why did this happen? I know I can't get away from that as I think about what the Nats did on Tuesday.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. And it is when you step back and consider how did we get to this point, it's pretty striking to consider all that. And how did we get here? I guess we got here because the Nationals made multiple attempts to try to get them to sign a long-term extension right now, including an offer that in totality would have been the largest in baseball history, but as we know on a year-to-year basis was not. And when he turned it down, which I think we all can say we understand why he did turn it down, somebody in the know, we still don't know officially who, decided to make that information become public. And it set off a feeding frenzy around the baseball world for 16 days. To the extent that maybe that is what prompted it all to happen. I think the great unknown here, I don't know if we'll ever know the answer to this, If the report never gets out, if somebody doesn't leak the fact that he turned down the contract offer and that Rizzo was at least exploring the possibility of trading him, would the trade have ever happened? Did it only happen because the rest of the baseball world knew about it, hyping up this all up, creating this frenzy to the point that the Padres put together a package that Mike Rizzo felt he could not turn down? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe we will know eventually. But he did stress, and take it for what it's worth, he said this was not... Ownership driven in that it wasn't like ownership said you must trade Juan Soto. It was we came to the realization. We don't think we're ever going to be able to re-sign him. And given that it's my job as GM to now see how much I could get for him. And if I get enough. That I'm going to make the trade. And he insists that if he didn't get the package that he got, he would not have made the trade and Juan Soto would still be here today.
0: I don't know how two and a half years out from Juan Soto's free agency, you could be so sure that there's no chance you'll ever be able to resign him. I just don't know how you could know that, especially when you don't know who the next owner of the team is going to be, unless Mike knows things that we don't know. And I guess maybe that's a possibility here. But how can you be so certain that there's no chance you can ever resign him. You know, it feels like the Nats tapped out on this. It feels like they just said, oh, golly gee, we can't make this happen, so we need to get out of this. It feels like the Nats were looking for a reason to trade Juan Soto, that they didn't really ever want to give him the contract that it would take to keep him. And again, there may well be merit to that, as we've discussed, right? These mega money contracts so rarely work out, but Juan Soto is someone for whom you could argue the exception should be made. But, you know, you think about this. If, in fact, the last offer was that much publicized offer, 15 years, $440 million, works out to the AAV of $29.33 million. As we have said, it was a below market value offer, even though, yes, $440 million is a ton of money. If that was your final offer, what was a below market value offer, then you didn't really try to extend them. You made him an offer. You know, we've talked about the godfather offer, the offer you can't refuse. That offer to me was a godmother offer. That's an offer that you know that the person is going to refuse. You put it out there so that it sounds like you tried, but in essence, you really weren't trying because you knew that he would say no. Soto predictably said no, and then right away they're like, oh, 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 well, we got to trade him. Let's leak this and then let's trade him. That's how it feels. It feels like the Nats, whether it was the Learners or Mike Rizzo or both, or maybe the prospective buyer of the Nats, the next owner we don't know, Someone said, let's not do this. Let's make it so that it looks like we have to trade them and then we trade them and then we don't have to deal with this moving forward. That's how it feels. It feels like the Nats forced this because again, this didn't have to happen.
1: Right. And my feeling all along and you know, can say, oh, well, this is their final offer or not. I felt like there would still be plenty of opportunity to up that offer. Didn't have to happen before the trade deadline. I thought, Later in the year, maybe come the offseason, again, when there's a new owner in place, make another run at it and see if there is a number you can get to that works for them. But I'll just say this, Mike Rizzo has dealt with Scott Boris enough over the years in high-profile cases, I think, to have a sense of what's possible and what isn't. And in his mind, he must have legitimately felt like this isn't going to happen, or at least it's not going to happen for such a long time that by the time it finally comes that we have a chance at doing it. If we can't get it done and we decide to trade him, we're not going to get anything in return for him. But still, I think like we discussed the other night, there were a whole lot of reasons in in the, if you're going to put together the the pros and cons of trading Juan Soto, there were a whole lot of reasons in the cons for just waiting, even if it's just for a few months. And I am surprised they didn't do that. And I guess what, Mike Rizzo would say and take him at his word for it if you want is that this offer that they got just now from the Padres was better than anything they would have ever gotten at any other point or from any other team and given the overall state of this organization he felt like that was their best path towards being a winning team again sooner than it would have been if he waited this out and still tried to do it with Juan Soto on the roster. I mean, let's acknowledge the team with Juan Soto on the roster has been terrible. Now, there's a whole lot of reasons why that's the case. It has nothing to do with Juan Soto. But if you're saying, are we going to keep doing the same thing and still being that same club with Juan Soto? Or are we going to make a move that we think may actually pull us out of this giant hole we've dug for ourselves and maybe do it sooner than we would have otherwise? I guess so, but boy, it's going to be a long time till we know the answer to that question.
0: It is, and there's no doubt that one player even an elite player in baseball can only mean so much. Uh ask the Angels, they have two elite players in Mike Trout and Shohei Otani and can't have a winning season to save their lives, but You know, it's not an either or situation, obviously, right? Like, you can have the great player and also be good because you can do a good job of drafting and developing and have other good players. And, you know, that the Nats have Juan Soto, that, of course, isn't the reason that they're bad. The Nats are bad because they don't have players beyond Juan Soto who are good enough to help Juan Soto and this team win. And you know, I do come back to something we talked about recently, which was if the state of the farm system was better, if the Nats had done a better job of drafting and developing in recent years, would this trade have happened? You know, was Juan Soto ultimately used as like a get out of jail free card of well, we've been really bad for really long at drafting and developing, so let's try to expedite the process here and trade Soto and get back a horde of prospects slash young players and see if that can speed things up. And you know, again, I just come back to like, well. Why should your screw ups in drafting and developing end up meaning that you trade away this generational talent? Like, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel like the way that things should be. Well, I guess this is the most important thing here because what's done is done. Soto's gone. So, you know, it's, it's, that's not changing. Is the haul worthy of what the Nats did? This was Juan Soto and Josh Bell. There have been a lot of mixed reviews of this. Certainly, there's a lot of talent that the Nats got back. Nobody's going to dispute that, but. In what you've seen in your conversations with people, was this truly an appropriate haul that Mike Rizzo procured for Juan Soto and Josh Bell?
1: If, you know, you listen to what people with the team were saying publicly and privately, so it's not just them putting on a good face for all this, they're pretty excited by it. And even some independent observers out there who follow these things were impressed by it. For what this is worth take it for whatever you want. Fangraphs, which does prospect rankings, says that at the start of the day, the Nationals had the 24th ranked farm system in baseball. And after these trades, they moved up to eighth. And if you were to include Mackenzie Gore, who doesn't officially count as a prospect anymore because he's been in the big leagues enough, it says they would move him up to fifth. So if that's true, that's a huge change in where they were. And when you combine this trade with recent draft picks, with some of the other moves they've made, international signings and all that. I think it's safe to say the farm system's in a much different and much better place today than it was. Now, the problem is that doesn't guarantee anything. There is not a single sure thing in all this. There's some very hyped up, impressive, these are like guys who were in the top 10 among MLB prospects at various points in the last few years. Several of them were that case. And in the Padres case, you're talking about two guys who were their top prospects previously, in, in Mackenzie Gore and CJ Abrams, and then two guys who were currently rated their number one and number three prospects, Robert Hassel third and James Wood, and then a, a flyer on an 18 year old pitcher named Harlan Susana, who Mike Grizzle was claiming was the linchpin to it all because that's who they think they got by adding Josh Bell to the equation, and they feel like this kid has the best arm and the highest ceiling of them all. He's just so young that you don't really know, you know, what's going to turn into. But here's the thing. Maybe one or two of them or three of them turn into something big, but maybe they don't. We already know Juan Soto is something big. That's not going to change. He already is a superstar. You're hoping that some of these guys can even come close to sniffing what Juan Soto was. And so, yes, this needed to be done for the organization and for their long-term development, but the shame of it is that they couldn't. There should have been ways to restock that farm system without trading away an iconic generational player.
0: It's not either or. It never has been either or. How come the San Diego Padres can afford Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis and have this great farm system? How come a team in San Diego, California can have all of that and a team in Washington, D.C. can't or at least doesn't right now? Like, what are the Padres doing that the Nats aren't doing? These are the questions that every Nats fan should be asking. To go through these young players slash prospects who the Nats got in this trade. So you have shortstop CJ Abrams. He came into the season as the number nine prospect in baseball per both MLB Pipeline and Baseball America. This is his age twenty one season. You have starting pitcher McKenzie Gore. He came into the season number eighty six prospect in baseball per. MLB pipeline, although this was a fall-off of him having uh, come into the 2021 season as the number six prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline. He's currently dealing with elbow inflammation, age 23 season. Outfielder Robert Hassel III, as we speak, the number 21 prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline, age 20 season. Outfielder James Wood, number 88 prospect, as we speak, in baseball per MLB pipeline. Age 19 season, was drafted out of IMG Academy in Florida, which produced Paolo Espino, by the way. But James Wood is a local, grew up in Maryland, went to St. John's College High School in Washington, D.C., and he is a big human being, 6'7", 240. And then the pitcher who you just referenced, Harleen Susana, he was the consensus number one ranked pitcher in the 2022 international signing class, age 18 season, another big dude, 6'6", 235 pounds. So there are things to like with these guys. Now, last season, the fire sale ended up resulting in a good number of the players acquired being called up to the majors sooner rather than later. I guess out of these guys who CJ Abrams would be someone who might be called up sooner rather than later?
1: Yeah, I think he'll be the first one we see, and probably in the next week or two would be my guess. They're sending him to Rochester for the moment. But I think kind of like they did with Caber Ruiz last year after the trade, he spent about a week, 10 days at AAA. Then they called him up and it was off and running. I think they just want to get him into the organization, get his feet wet, get to know some people, and then we're going to see him. And the interesting thing there, the belief is that he is the shortstop now of the future. So that could bump Luis Garcia to second base, which is something we've all been wondering if that would be happening at some point. So he'll be the first one. Mackenzie Gore is somebody who's been in the big leagues all this year, and so you would think that... we would be seeing him. Like you said, he's on the IL. He was just placed last week with elbow inflammation. They looked at the MRI. The doctors said it's clear that there's nothing structurally there. But Rizzo did say they're going to be careful with him. They're going to take it slow with him. So maybe we see him before the year is over, but maybe we don't. And I wouldn't be shocked if they just took their time there and we see him next year. But he is somebody who's going to be in their immediate plans here once he's healthy and certainly going into next season. The other three are much further away. Hassel is at single A, high A ball. James Wood is at low A ball and Harlan Susana is in rookie ball. So that's going to be a while. And that's why really it's going to be years until we know how this all works out and whether it was the right move or not. Now, you know, the trade-off there is you can get more guys who are big league ready, but they may not be ultimately as highly touted or as big name or, you know, ultimately have as high a ceiling as anyone else. In this case, they're feeling good, you know, it's almost like some extra draft picks when you're talking about 18, 19, 20 year olds. And that's what they're going to wait and see now. Can they do it? So you put them all together with Brady House and Elijah Green and all the others that they've picked up here recently. And there comes a day somewhere down the road where maybe they're all here together. But that day isn't coming for a while. And I think that's the hardest part of this.
0: Yeah, no doubt. But it is kind of exciting? Can we say the word exciting right now? I don't know. But you have now a decent number of position playing prospects for the Nats, late teens, early 20s. If this all times out, they could all be coming up to the majors more or less at the same time. You just mentioned Brady House, Elijah Green, Christian vaquero and you look at Okay, CJ Abrams will be up sooner rather than later, but Robert Hassel third, James Wood, like right there are five guys who in a few years could all be blossoming more or less at the same time. So, you know, that could be a pretty cool thing. That next generation of winning Nats teams could have a really nice core to get excited about. But of course, we are years away. It's tough. You know, any notion now of a quick rebuild is out the window. And and look, that notion was out a while ago. It's not like that changed on Tuesday. But, you know, I remember when the fire sale happened last year, the conversation was, well, you know, if this, that, the other happens, maybe the Nats are good again sooner rather than later. We know now that's not happening. The team is worse than anyone thought. A lot of the guys who already were at the majors who, if they panned out, could have expedited things that has not worked out And now, you're really depending on a good number of guys, late teens, early 20s. And so, this probably is going to be a thing of, you know, you're targeting, what, 2024, 2025, maybe? I mean, who knows in terms of like that realistic year when you can finally start to have success again at the major league level?
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought 2024 was the optimistic view. And now, you're kind of pushing beyond that, I would say, to 25. But the only thing I would say... That could change the dynamic here. And again, this is such a huge unknown for the franchise. And until you know when an ownership change happens, and even if it's still the current ownership, there's a whole lot of money off the books. They still Strasbourg Strasburg and Corbin contracts. Can't do anything about that. But the rest of the payroll is pretty empty, and there's no other long-term commitments to anybody. If whoever the owner is wants to start spending big, there is an opportunity to do that this winter, the winter after that and you don't necessarily have to wait for all these kids to make it up. Now, is that the smart way to go? I'm not sure that is the way to do it. You would think that you save those kind of moves until your team is closer to being ready to win. But remember, many years ago, they signed Jason Wirth to a huge contract, which by today's standards wouldn't look so huge anymore. They signed him after the 2010 season, and that was a team that had just lost 93 games. And still had a little ways to go. So maybe there is something like that in the relatively near future that helps expedite the process. But if you're just talking about building this from within, outside of a handful of younger guys who were either already here, like Luis Garcia, Cabert Ruiz, Josiah Gray, and then a few others who are close, Cole Henry, and obviously Kate Cavalli, there really isn't anybody else who we're probably talking about prior to 2024, or really more realistically, 2025.
0: Yeah, so the Nats now have four top 100 prospects per MLB pipeline. Who is and isn't technically a prospect can be kind of confusing. So this is a bit misleading, but the Nats have four top 100 prospects per MLB pipeline. Uh, Robert Hassel the third, number 21. Cade Cavalli, number 44. Brady House, number 49. James Wood, number 88. Cavalli, by the way, pitched on Tuesday night, made a start for AAA Rochester. Two runs and four innings, four strikeouts, one walk, gave up five hits, a double and four singles, issued two hit-by-pitches, and a wild pitch. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of K. Ruiz? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons,
3: The 2-2. Swing a high drive. Right field deep. Marte looking up and there it goes. A long home run for Garcia. Gives the Nationals the lead back 3-1. to one. In and out of the second deck. Lands down below. Beyond the out-of-town scoreboard in right center.
0: I don't know how big of a deal this is because I don't know what realistically you would have gotten back for these people. But boy, it really is something that the Nats ended up only making two trades and only ended up trading away three players for all of the conversations that we had about who could be gone. The Nats only ended up trading Juan Soto, Josh Bell, and A. Ray Adrianza. How funny does that end up being? And on Tuesday, the Nats only made the one trade, the Soto Bell trade with the Padres. Nelson Cruz not traded Cesar Hernandez or Michael Franco, not traded. Not a single Nats reliever. Kyle Finnegan, Coral Edwards Jr., Steve Ciszek, not traded. Now, I suppose it's possible the Nats weren't trying to trade Finnegan, but I mean, these other guys, you got to think the Nats were trying to trade, or at least uh, sure as heck should have been open to trading, right? Especially Cruz, and that not a single team apparently wanted any of these other players. Boy, is that an indictment of these guys. Have you heard what happened as to why the Nats didn't make any other trades beyond these two trades?
1: So what uh, I did hear at the end of the night was when it came to the relievers, it was not for lack of interest from other teams. And I don't know what extent the interest was, but there was, you know, there were calls placed in asking about their various relievers. And certainly in a lot of these cases, the feeling was, hey, you know what, we have these guys under control for a while longer specifically Finnegan. And remember, Carl Edwards Jr., we kind of forgot about this fact. They actually have another year of control of him. He's arbitration eligible. Victor Arano is a guy who's still under control. So it's really Ciszek would be the primary one who's just a free agent at the end of this year, and maybe there wasn't that much interest in him. But I think there essentially, the feeling there was, unless somebody really blew us away with an offer, let's hang on to these relievers who are controllable and who honestly have pitched really well. At the moment, It's become the biggest strength of the team, the bullpen. I don't know how long that's going to last. I don't know if that's sustainable year to year, but for the moment, that's actually what they've got maybe more than anything else. And so they decided to hang on to them. The ones that I'm more surprised at, Nelson Cruz. Look, you're telling me there wasn't a single offer for him. they, They weren't going to ask for much, I don't think. Why would you keep him around even if somebody was offering a you know, a low A-ball prospect somewhere, you would think they would just go ahead and take that. But here's what's telling. Somebody pointed this out, that they had a couple of relievers come down from Rochester to be here up until six o'clock in case something happened. So they were prepared for the possibility. And you got to have enough players to take the field for this game. But outside of the two position players who they'd already announced, they'd called up to replace Bell and Soto. That's Joey Manessis and Josh Palacios. They didn't have any other position players on standby. So they must have known they weren't going to trade Nelson Cruz or Cesar Hernandez or Michael Franco or anybody else. At least they had gotten the sense in recent days, there's just not a market for them. And so, boy, in the end, they signed Nelson Cruz for $15 million guaranteed in spring training. And the idea was he can provide pop right now, help create a pretty good three, four, five in the lineup, be a good mentor to Juan Soto, and then you can turn him into something for the future. And instead. He didn't really give you any of that. He wasn't much protection in the lineup. I guess he was a good influence in the clubhouse, of course. But in the end, you still have him and you're paying him for the rest of this year and you're not getting anything for the future in return. And that is a big miss on the Nats' part in the end.
0: Yes, it is. I mean, you think about the worst short term contracts in Nats' history. And look, there's a school of thought that says there's no such thing as a bad one year contract. But You know, the Matt Wieters deal, which I think was a two year deal. Right. The Rafael Soriano deal was a short term deal. Like these are deals that stand out in terms of like it just did not work out at all. And this Nelson Cruz deal really has ended up being a flop of a deal. That really is something. I mean, what kind of odds could you have gotten back in March going into the season, April, that Nelson Cruz would be so bad that you can't trade him to anyone for anything come the trade deadline? Like, that really is something that that's what ended up happening. I mean, it it was kind of funny. The game on Tuesday night, you know, you're looking at the lineup, right? And you see, you know, this makeshift lineup. But there's Nelson Cruz. You know, Nelson Cruz is still here and he's not going anywhere as this season now plays out. So, yeah, the Nats did win on Tuesday night. And You know, I don't know how much you can enjoy a game like this off the events of earlier in the day, but this was a pretty fun game if you could somehow just isolate the game and forget about everything else, which again, I'm not sure that was possible. But a 5-1 win over the New York Mets... Corey Abbott outduels Jacob DeGrom. Now, that's a little misleading. DeGrom was making his season debut, he was actually pitching in a major league regular season game for the first time since July 7th, 2021. So, you know, it wasn't peak DeGrom, but it was still Jacob DeGrom, and Corey Abbott still ended up outpitching Jacob DeGrom in this game. It's amazing, man. I mean, we see Patrick Corbin struggle every five games, and then you see Corey Abbott go out there and do as he did on Tuesday night and you know, keep this in mind, do as he did against one of the better hitting teams in the majors this season in the Mets. I mean, the Mets are legitimately a top five offensive team in baseball this year. The Mets came into the game on Tuesday, number five in the majors in team weighted runs created plus this season. And Abbott goes out there and gives you five shutout innings. He only allowed two hits, both of which were singles, issued two walks into hit by pitch, recorded three strikeouts through 76 pitches. One of the more pleasantly, surprisingly successful outings for a Nats pitcher this season. You know, you got to tip the cap to Corey Abbott.
1: You absolutely do. I mean, think about everything that was going on. And now you got to take the field for this game. And on paper, this is about as big a mismatch as you're ever going to see. And I compared it to what I had always talked about being the most unexpected win in Nationals history, the most lopsided matchup ever back in 2007, when LaVale Spigner, a Rule 5 pick who had like a 14 ERA at the time, is going up against the Twins and Johan Santana, who was in peak form at that point. And that was a legitimate outpitched the Cy Young over like seven innings to win the game two to one. That has stood the test of time as the most improbable win in Nationals history. This one is up there. That's not just straight up Abbott over DeGrom. It's everything else they did, the bullpen. You know, who the contributors were offensively, but with everything else at stake, big time props to Corey Abbott and everybody else who contributed to this win. I know it doesn't mean anything in the big picture. It doesn't change anything. Juan Soto is still a padre. This team is still on its way to well over 100 losses. They're not going to suddenly become a contender anytime sooner because of it. But if you just needed a little glimpse of something to feel good about at the end of the night, you got it. Because it was a feel-good win. And there also were some young guys and important guys that played a role in it, most notably Luis Garcia.
0: Yeah, and you saw a lineup that finally made some sense in terms of the rebuild. You know, Luis Garcia batting in the two spot, Cesar Hernandez batting in the eight spot. Can we please keep that moving forward? Can we please be done with Cesar Hernandez batting in the one spot or the two spot? I mean, really, enough, okay? Keep Luis Garcia up there. And, you know, to this fear that I guess Davey has or other people have of, you know, this is going to mess with Luis Garcia's mind. Really? Batting in the two spot? That didn't seem to mess with his mind on Tuesday night. Two for four with a two-run homer and an RBI double. He in the Nats one-run fourth had an RBI double off Jacob deGrom to the right center field gap for a one nothing Nats lead. <laughs> and then Garcia in the Nats three-run sixth, a one-out two-run homer to right field for a 3-1 Nats lead. 427 feet first ad cast. And the highlight of the Homer, and I think the highlight of the night was how Garcia reacted to that Homer. And if you haven't seen it, you gotta watch it. Because we talked about Juan Soto pimping his home run the previous night in his final game as an ad. Boy, did Luis Garcia enjoy hitting this home run. We know that Luis Garcia is not shy, he's not bashful, he's not lacking in confidence. He hit that homer, and he admired that homer, and he deserved to admire that homer. That was some shot.
1: It was impressive. It really was impressive, and he did admire it. And you know what? Under those circumstances, that was quite all right. Yes, it was more than Victor Robles did, and I'm sure Madison Bumgarner would have taken offense to it, but I didn't hear anything about the Mets being upset with it. And like I said, it was a good win for them and a feel-good win, but I think that's what made it more than anything. This was a really good night for Luis Garcia to step up and do something big. They needed that. As a team, he needed it individually. It's crazy to think, but he is all of a sudden one of the centerpieces of this team now, for better or worse, until they have some others who are here. It's him and Cabert Ruiz and Josiah Gray uh, and a few others, and maybe we'll see C.J. Abrams here soon, and that could move Garcia to second base. But I thought that was actually pretty significant for him to do that on this night, and he's got the next two months now to maybe step things up a little bit and prove if he can be a big part of this moving forward.
0: Hey, guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Great deal going on with Window Nation right now. The back to school sale, two free windows for every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing until 2024, visit windownation.com or call 866-90-NATION and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you and that you want the back-to-school sale. You want the deal that you heard about on the Nat Chat podcast. Window Nation is the best. Lower your energy bills, raise the value of your home with Window Nation energy-efficient windows. You'll get an A-plus in savings. Window Nation has an A plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. Window Nation installers have installed over a million windows in over 150,000 homes, with 96% of those homes needing no follow up service. Window Nation does the job and does the job right the first time. WindowNation.com or 866 90 Nation. Tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you and say, hey, I want the back to school sale. Two free windows for every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing until 2024. Yeah, you're not going to pay Window Nation a penny until the Nats are good again. 2024. That's WindowNation.com or 866-90-NATION. That's WindowNation.com or 866-90-NATION. And tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent
3: you. MS is up there. The first pitch is blasted high and deep to right center field. Long chase going back, it's got a chance, and it's gone! Welcome to the big leagues, Joey Manessis. His first big league hit is his first big league home run into the seats in right center field.
0: The Nats lineup on Tuesday night, one through nine, Robles, Garcia, Yadiel Hernandez, Cruz, Ruiz, Manessis, Palacios, Cesar Hernandez, and Michael Franco. Not exactly the 2070 Yankees, and yet the Nats hit three home runs on Tuesday night. I mean, how about that? The lineup for so much of this season has been so bad in terms of power. Tuesday night, no Soto, no Bell, and the Nats Smash three home runs. Uh, Garcia had one of them. Yadiel Hernandez followed Luis Garcia's homer with a homer on the next pitch as the Nats went back to back. But was there a better feel-good moment on Tuesday night than what happened with Joey Manessis? The Nats on Tuesday afternoon selected the contract of first baseman Joey Manessis from AAA Rochester. He, by the way, was yet another older player for the Nats at Rochester who lead the planet in 30-somethings at AAA over these last few years. This season is Manessis' age 30 season, his 10th minor league season. This is not some prospect, okay? But he, on Tuesday night, as an at starting first baseman and number six batter, he was a Josh Bell replacement. He was making, Manessis was his major league regular season debut, and he homered. He went one for four with a solo homer. One run seventh, a leadoff first pitch homer to right field for a 5-1 Nat's lead. His first career hit is a home run in his first game, 405 feet for StatCast. That was a pretty neat moment.
1: It was a really cool moment for a guy who's had a good season. At AAA. Now, you say, hey, he's a 30-year-old at AAA. He probably doesn't have a big future here. And honestly, he may not be up here much longer because we haven't talked about this. Luke Void is the other player they got in the trade, the actual guy with big league experience. I would imagine we're going to see him in the next day or two. And he's probably going to be their primary first baseman the rest of the way, I think. And this isn't just a necessarily short-term thing. Luke Void is 31 years old and has two more years of arbitration eligibility. He's basically under contract as much as Juan Soto would have been to this point. So I think he's going to be here for a little bit. And a guy who has some history of, you know, hitting for some power and, and you know, has done some decent things. Wasn't having a great year with San Diego, but in this lineup, he's probably one of their most productive guys. But as for Joey Manessas, a really cool moment for him. He had waited a long time to get this call. Didn't know if he would ever get it. When it did happen, you could see, Okay, first at bat in the big leagues, you're facing Jacob DeGrom and he strikes out. Okay, well, good luck, kid. Or not kid. Good luck, old man. Comes back the next time, makes some decent contact, drives the ball to right field for an out. Now he comes back in the seventh and he's facing a reliever. And it was opposite field power over the fence. The crowd went nuts. He really enjoyed it around the bases. And he said he couldn't even really process what this all meant. He just knew, enjoy this, savor it for everything that it's worth. It's funny. These are all new guys to us, but a lot of those guys in that clubhouse now, They really know each other well. They've all been together in Rochester for a decent part of the season. And the the line of the night came from Corey Abbott afterwards. He said their motto among themselves has been, don't let the Red Wings get hot. So the Rochester Red Wings are now in the big leagues, and they got hot on this night and beat the New York Mets. So maybe that'll uh, help sustain this and keep them going.
0: That's, That's cool. I mean, good for them. You know, this is the classic thing in sports. You know, David Goliath backs against the wall. Nobody gives you any kind of a chance. And so basically at this point moving forward, Anything that you do well is going to be a pleasant surprise, and it's going to be well received. So good for those guys. Yeah, Luke Voigt can hit uh, OPS plus of 125 since the start of the 2020 season. With the Nats bullpen on Tuesday night. So four Nats relievers combined to allow one run in four innings. We had another incredible escape act by Kyle Finnegan. This is something what he's doing here. One in two-thirds perfect innings. Came into the game, top of the seventh. Runners on second and third, one out. Nats up four-one. Finnegan incredibly gets Brandon Nimmo to line to shortstop Luis Garcia for an unassisted double play to end the Mets thread, and then Finnegan tossed a perfect top of the eighth. He faced four batters in the game. He got five outs, and the four batters who he faced were the Mets' numbers one through four batters, Brandon Nimmo, Starling Marte, Francisco Lindor, and Pete Alonso. So another instance of Kyle Finnegan in a high-leverage spot facing the opposition's best hitters. Coming through. And he has some juju working right now where he gets out of these jams in like, you know, one or two or three or four pitches. That's pretty amazing. It
1: is. And it's like, is there reason for this? Like, is he actually doing something to make this possible? Or is this just a great stroke of luck that he's on to get these double plays? I mean, he, it was a line drive. This wasn't a you know traditional six four three. It was a line drive to shortstop. Garcia catches it. The runner was way off the base. He steps on it, gets out of it. I'll tell you what, he ends up then pitching the eighth, like he's done in some of these multi-inning appearances, and just cruises through that one. And now he's through the eighth on 12 pitches. And I'm thinking to myself, would you bring him back for the ninth, actually? And the answer was no, they wouldn't. It was Carl Edwards to finish it out in the ninth. But we talked all week long about Finnegan and what do you do with him? Obviously, they chose not to trade him, at least not at this point. They may have something here, and that's okay. It's not a mistake. To not trade him you just have to hope that he can continue to develop into being this guy that he looks like he could be he's going to get plenty of opportunities now he is really the closer although i also love what Davey martinez did here it's a 5-1 game but it's the seventh inning it's the meat of their lineup that's coming up and he says i'm putting my best guy in right now so props to Davey for doing that and i think you're going to see more of that from him and good for kyle finnegan who is um Going to be a national for a while longer, at least.
0: Yeah, and maybe you can get even more for him next year, you know? I mean, maybe by this time next year, Kyle Finnegan is viewed as one of the elite relievers in the National League. Who knows? Well, the rest of our lives now begins, and we shall see where it takes us. We are in this together, though. We're not going anywhere. Juan Soto may be gone, and we are not. You're stuck with us. If you tell us what you think. Hit us up. You can uh, tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com.
1: Before we go, Al, I have to share something that happened while we were taping, the greatest of all time, Vin Scully passed away. And so on a day that had been so improbable, the impossible has happened. Vin Scully is gone. Greatest broadcaster of all time, right? Nobody comes close.
0: No, uh, that's very sad. I did not know that until you just said that. Uh, That's a real bummer. That's a real bummer. Yeah. Incredible voice, incredible ability to not just call a game, but tell stories during a game and those iconic calls that he has, you and I grew up in the '80s, early '90s, and Vince Scully calling big games in those days. In his calls, I mean, I think about his call of like Game Six of the 1986 World Series, and w- when he calls the Bill Buckner play, and when he has called you know the Kirk Gibson home run against the A's in '88. I mean, just tremendous. Uh, that's really sad. Rest in peace.
1: 94 years old and worked. Up until just a few years ago, he did 67 seasons as the Dodgers broadcaster and did most of those games solo. And I had the good fortune just to have covered a lot of games that he would be there at Dodger Stadium. And every once in a while, you luck out and the timing is right. and You end up on the press elevator with him. And it was like standing with royalty. Big smile on his face, always wearing an immaculately pressed sport coat, little carnation or something on the lapel. I mean, everybody wanted a piece of him, and he was the kindest, sweetest man, just the best of all time. I don't think anybody has ever done it better than him. Nobody could ever even try to imitate what Vin Scully was.
0: Yeah, he did more than baseball, too. I mean, he was all over the place in terms of what he did and for how long that he did it you know, he wasn't just like a great baseball play-by-play man. He was a great broadcaster, period. And he had really a surreal run in terms of what he did in broadcasting. So, wow, uh, that's sad news. And you know, the other thing with him too is he has a local tie. He worked at WTOP in Washington, D.C. many, many years ago. So, there is a Washington, D.C. tie uh, with Vin Scully. And the other kind of funny thing is, so he joined Twitter a few years ago. And if you ever read his tweets – they read like he broadcasted, like you can hear his voice when you read his tweets. It's hysterical.
1: The ultimate storyteller, like you said, everything, whether it was written or spoken, it's not just what he said, but how he said it in such a poetic, just profound way, in a way that nobody can ever imitate. Nobody can ever try to do what Vince Scully did for so long.
0: Rest in peace to the great Vin Scully. Uh, all Nashville's radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.
1: So the winning run is at second base with
2: two out, three and two to Mookie Wilson. Little roller up along first, behind the back!